I'd like for you to take your Bibles and go to Romans 15 tonight. We closed in our last session with that great 29th verse. And now tonight we begin with verse 30. The King James Version reads, Now I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake and for the love of the Spirit that ye strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. The heart of a man of God may be seen. It may be appreciated by some and loved by some, but I guarantee you it will never be fully understood. Really, that man of God, his strengths as well as his weaknesses, which he knows better than anybody else, will basically never be known except to his own soul. And you will always find people who try to outguess the man of God. They'll try to outreason him. They'll try to outthink him. But in truth, they will really never know. The best that they can ever do is accept his life and bless him whenever and wherever possible. And just let that man of God walk and live out his life. And in that way, they will reap the greatest benefit of that man's soul. The greatest tenderness and humanness, the humanness of a man of God, and at the same time, the great steel and stone strength of that man are a paradox. One moment, that man of God appears to be so strong, and another moment, he appears to be so weak. One moment, so ready to help and bless, yet, at another moment, always easy to be upset, easy to be hurt, very sensitive, just like the apple of your eye. The word beseech in verse 30 is the Greek word parakaleo, parakaleo, which means lovingly, almost beggingly, imploring you to stand with him. What he is simply saying to them, will you please, I beg you, I lovingly beg you to put me at the top of your lift list. Of course, you well know the word brethren means born-again ones, the believers. For is the preposition dia, meaning by our Lord Jesus Christ. The word sake is not in the text. Using this preposition dia, in the light of what I just described for you as the meaning of the word beseech is, by what our Lord Jesus Christ accomplished completely for all of us. In other words, I lovingly, almost beggingly implore you to stand with me by what our Lord Jesus Christ or because of through what he, our Lord Jesus Christ accomplished completely for all of us and Again, for the love of the Spirit, the word for is again the word dia, by or through the love of the Spirit, meaning and by the love of God, 
God who so loved that he gave his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that you, brethren, strive together with me. Those words, strive together with me, is a Greek word. Sun agonizomai, spelled S-U-N, A-G, long O, N. I-Z-O-M-A-I. Sun agonitsomai. This word is an athletic term. The athlete of the spirit rather than the armored soldier. This is an athletic term, meaning contend in the contest as a competitor who is giving his last ounce of expended strength, this beseeching the brethren by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, the love of God, where he loved God so loved that he gave the Lord Jesus Christ, our completely complete Savior, that you strive with me as an athlete Boy, if you've ever seen a man beg his people to stand with him, this is it in verse 30. Paul is begging, lovingly begging, imploring them. His heart must have been so hurt, so tender, so I don't know how else to describe it. He, he just wanted them so to stand with him that they would be like people, great athletes who had given the last ounce of their expended strength. And it's significant that this is the only usage in the Bible of that word, of that specific word, the one and only. That pretty well tells me that he was really dipping down. He was really begging, beseeching in an unbelievable way that my mind does not understand tonight and I don't fully know because only Paul knows that. But that its usage is only one is very significant to me. And it indicates to me what discipline Paul had gone through, what expended effort he had put forth, like to make known the mystery that had been hidden secret from before the foundation of the world. For most people, that's just words. But for those of us who really love God, and have an understanding of his word at least a little bit. It makes Paul's life and his expended effort very vivid to us. You see, Paul had poured out his soul. Paul had laid it all on the line. The record, you know, he was telling about his training and born a Pharisee and all that. Remember that great record? And he said he counted all that stuff as dung. If 
but for the excellency of the knowledge of the Word of God. What a fantastic man. He had literally poured out his soul. He laid it all on the line. And right in here, he so humbly and lovingly asked the believers in Rome that those lives that he had blessed by making known the greatness of the mystery that all he wanted them to do is to put him at the top of their prayer list. That's all he was asking for. He didn't ask him for money. He didn't ask him for a new car. He didn't ask them for anything except to put him at the top of their prayer list. What a man. That's why it says, in prayers to God for me. I really wonder if any of us will ever fully understand the in-heart depth, the cry of the soul of a man of God, the great humanness of Paul so touches my heart in these verses. I have no words in my vocabulary to explain it any better. Verse 31 reads, that I may be delivered from them that do not believe in Judea. I can't for the life of me understand why certain ones would try to kill him, no more so than I can understand why the children of Israel would endeavor to kill the Lord Jesus Christ. Why people want to kill men like Paul or like Jesus Christ, who all that those men ever did was to contribute to lives of people, to bless people's lives, to lift them up out of the miry clay, so to speak. You see, some had even taken a vow upon themselves to destroy Paul, kill him, why? The only answer I know has to be a biblical one, and I don't understand all of this, but that one from Ephesians 6.12, so we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers from on high or on high, from high places. And they're usually men who are in positions of authority and power sense knowledge-wise how his heart was hurt when all he wanted was just God's best for all the Judeans. So what kept him going? The only thing I know that kept him going was the revelation that was the first one written and the first one given, Thessalonians, the hope. I think it's only the hope that ever keeps a man of God really going. The love of God in the renewed mind in manifestation without hypocrisy, which is built in the soul of a man of God because of the hope, the return, and because of what God wrought in Christ Jesus to make him our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. A man renews his mind on. He believes it. And the love of God in the renewed mind, he develops then without any hypocrisy because of the hope, and the hope is the only thing that teaches rewards. And I believe that's all that ever keeps a man of God going.
there's a record in Hebrews 11 that substantiates what I'm sharing with the core tonight. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 38. Of whom the world was not what? Worthy. Why? Because they had to wander around in deserts. They had to hide in mountains, in dens, caves of the earth. And these all having obtained a good report through believing. Yet they received not the promise, the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, or his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and is seated at the right hand or the day of Pentecost like you have. God having provided something better for us. Therefore, chapter 12, seeing we also are compassed about with this so great a cloud of witnesses, men of God and women of God who really believed because of the hope, the first was the first hope of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what kept these men going, that they were willing to wander around, to be in deserts, willing to hide in mountains, dens, caves, and so forth, simply for one reason, core, and that is to move the word, to move the word, to move the word. Everything is always contingent upon moving the word. Anything you can do is fine as long as we move the word. The word, the word, the word has to move. We're compassed about with that great cloud of witnesses, and those witnesses did not have what you have in the core. Therefore, surely, we can lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset, and we can run with patience, second wind, the race that is set before us as spiritual athletes, looking unto Jesus, the runner, looking unto Jesus, the runner, who is the author, he's the starter, and he's the finisher of believing who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. As you and I will be sitting and are already seated in the heavenlies, but in the return, changed and be with him forever to be rewarded. For consider him who endured such contradiction of sinners, against himself, lest you be wearied and you faint in your minds. The only reason a core ever cops out is because you faint in your mind. You let the adversary get to you. Then you get weary. You start thinking negative thoughts. You start being oppressed, depressed, daydreaming on the negatives. And then you faint in your mind. But be reminded, verse 4, you have not yet resisted unto blood, giving your life like Jesus Christ did, striving against what? Right. Back to verse 31. That I may be delivered from them who do not believe in Judea. You see, I think many people think that a man of God like Paul should have always been strong, have no weaknesses. 
Never need any help. Never need anybody to love him. Never need anybody to serve him tea or ice cream or coffee or bake him a pumpkin pie or something. Paul's always so strong. You don't know God or his word or men of God. That's why he said, he asked them, beseech them for prayer that he might be delivered from them who do not believe in Judea. And then the second phrase, and that my service which I have for Jerusalem may be accepted of the saints. I wonder if we will ever appreciate that or understand it in all of its fullness. This is the key thought of this whole prayer that my service may be accepted of the saints, accepted of the saints, that they will accept it. That's his key thought, that the believers do not get influenced by the unbelievers to the end, that the believers will not accept the gift of God he is bringing from others. In verse 32, that I may come unto you with joy by the will of God and may with you be what? Refreshed. You see, if those unbelievers in Judea imprison or kill him, he could not come to the Romans in joy because he'd be dead. Or if the believers did not accept his gift in Jerusalem, it would hurt his heart so much so that the joy of being with the believers in Rome would be diminished. In Galatians chapter 2, the one requirement when Paul appeared in Jerusalem before our top believers of that time that were there in Jerusalem, they gave to Paul and to Barnabas the right hand of fellowship in verse 9. And the only thing they requested of them in Jerusalem is in verse 10, that they only they would, that we should remember the poor, the same which I also was zealous to do. Now he's coming back to Jerusalem to bring that gift that they asked him to not, not forget about. He's now got it together, ready to bring it back and he's got questions in his heart and mind whether they're now really going to receive it or have the unbelievers so twisted their head against Paul that when he brings this gift, they'll say, no, we don't want it. Understand a little of this because I have dealt with men who so hate me for my ministry, yet they're Christians, they will not even shake my hand. They won't even say hi to me. They'll walk the other way. They would never allow me to preach in their pulpits. And these are men that I attended college and seminary with. Men who at one time I played basketball with, worked with, lived with, drank beer with. <laughs> Real close. Today they won't even shake my hand. I understand a little of it, but not to the depth I'm sure of what the Apostle Paul knew. If you really want to see this verse that I'm describing to you, you're going to have to read 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, where a lot of this stuff is set in much greater detail. You see, his prayer 
that he wanted them to really join with him is that he'd be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that the unbelievers would not influence the believers to the extent in Jerusalem that when he brought this gift, they'd turn their back on him and they wouldn't accept what he was bringing them. And that would stop his joy and it would stop him from being refreshed with the people in Rome because it would hurt his heart. That it may be accepted by the saints of verse 31. That they may accept it, not reject it. How cruel people can be to men of God. I sometimes unbelievable. God accepts the Gentiles. He has just shown us all that throughout the whole book of Romans. God accepts the Gentiles. Religion does not accept men of God. God accepts the Gentiles as well as the Jews. But religion will neither accept any of them who are born again of God's spirit. Religion is the cruelest. Next is politics. But politics is religion in one sense. That's why it's so cruel. Religion's cruel. Religion rejects the gift that he would have for the saints. And he wants their prayers that the saints may accept the gift so that his coming to Rome, he would just be bubbling in his heart when he got there so that he could sit down with the people in Rome, the believers, with his heart bubbling and just hold hands with them and be blessed by them, which is refreshed. Not that he'd have to teach all the time, every night, every day. Not have all the work of the care of the churches every minute. All that clerical work, all the answering to the letters, all the telephone calls, everything else. Not have all the work to do all the time. It is like a rest from labor and effort, the word refreshed, so that it, he might enjoy the tenderness and pleasure of their company. This is what he beseeched the brethren for by the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God that they would strive together with him to pray to God. The thing he did not know at that moment yet was the future. You and I know the future because of the word. He never got to Rome with the joy that he anticipated, with the refreshment that he so longingly wanted in his heart. It never happened, as you will see when you get in chapter 16. When he gets to Jerusalem with this gift, the very people whom he loved, the nation for which he'd given his life criticized him, found fault with him, and caught him in the temple. Then they captured him, took him a prisoner, and I'm sure he never made it to Spain, as we had read earlier, on his way to Rome. But I do know he got to Rome, but not with joy by the will of God and that he was refreshed. He went as a prisoner to Rome. Almost makes a man cry when you read these words in Romans. 
And yet, as I work this word and see the greatness of the life of this man, he never complained. Even though he didn't have time to sit with the people in Rome and be refreshed by them, although it never occurred that he, that he had the joy that he was anticipating and that he, he humanly wanted and desired and needed so badly, when he didn't get it, he never complained. For one reason, the word of God came first in his life. Everything else secondary. If you have the joy of somebody's company, wonderful. If you don't, the word still comes first. And to see that in the greatness of these verses here, as I've said, almost tears your heart out. And he closes with verse 33. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. It's a blessing. It's a benediction. It's like a laying on of hands spiritually upon the believers in Rome. Significant that he uses the God of peace. In Romans 5.1, 5.1, Therefore being justified by believing, we have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ putting that together with verse 30 and his great desire not to be captured by the unbelievers or that the unbelievers would influence the believers that his offering was not accepted, that he wanted to come with joy and to be refreshed by the Romans, the church in Rome. He says, now the God of peace, justified by faith, we have peace. We've got it, that God of peace, which we spiritually have, the God who made that peace available is with you all. In chapter 15, you know, in verse 13, it's its nearer context. The God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. The church in Rome had believed. They were born again. They had received that peace. They were justified. They had that peace of God. In 1620, we have a future context. And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet quickly. The God of peace that same truth and the greatness of it you have to understand also in the light of Ephesians. Chapter 2, verse 14. For he, Jesus Christ, is our peace, who hath made both one, Jew and Gentile, because he destroyed or broke down the middle wall of partition, having abolished in his flesh, by what he did, the enmity between God and man, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, in order that he might create in himself of twain one new man, so making what? Peace. In chapter 4, in verse 3, so we endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of what? That peace 
which God made available in Christ Jesus, which lives in you spiritually. That's part of the dynamis in Philippians chapter 4, verse 7. And the peace of God passes all understanding, but it's that peace of God that keeps your hearts and your minds. And in verse 9, those things which we have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. And in Colossians chapter 3, and in verse 15, and let the peace of God rule where? In your hearts, to the which also you're called in one body. You're called in one body, called by God, called in one body, and be ye what? Thankful. Romans 15. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Nowhere have I seen the great soul of the heart of this man more gorgeously and beautifully than in these closing verses of chapter 15. What a man.